listening to the Paul McGuire Report. This is Paul McGuire. We're going to talk about a number of things in terms of Bible prophecy. Starting right up, we're going to get into this war against Israel, this invasion of Israel by Hamas and uh, Hamas's connection to uh, Iran. So essentially, Iran uh, and Hamas, and to whatever degree Russia, have invaded Israel, which is predicted in Bible prophecy. Now, what makes this, it's not interesting, it's tragic, but what makes this of particular interest is the fact that 50 years ago, to the date that Israel was last in a major war, it was 50 years ago. And 50 years ago, Israel was involved in what was called the Yom Kippur War, which was back in 1973. And back then, Israel was attacked by nations like Egypt and Syria and other Islamic nations. So 50 years later, after the Yom Kippur War, uh, Israel is now attacked again. That is a prophetic series of events. I worked closely with one of Israel's highest-level generals, uh, one of Israel's most famous generals, for many years. His name was General Shimon Aram, and he was one of Israel's most important generals, and he was, until he went on to heaven, General Shimon Aram was involved in all the battles and wars that Israel had to fight, beginning with the exodus of Jews from Germany after World War II, when they were, when when Adolf Hitler and the Nazis were defeated, finally, the Jews began to escape uh, from Europe and Germany by ship, massive ships, and they uh, uh, went to Israel. And this exodus of Jews from Europe to Israel um, was largely coordinated by General Shimon Aram and others. And General Shimon Aram was not only involved in that situation, he was directly involved in all the various battles uh, up until a couple of years ago uh, when he went to heaven. But he was involved in uh, the 1963 Yom Kippur War, the Six-Day War. He was involved in that in a very high-level position. He was kind enough uh, to write uh, an endorsement on the cover of my book, uh, Are You Ready? And I'll just read you what he said and quote it from General Shimon Aram. Uh, Paul McGuire's book, Are You Ready?, is an eye-opener. Paul McGuire, an effective teacher and radio talk show host, is a watchman uh, on the walls of Israel, one of the best. And I consider that an honor to have uh, uh, heard the inside stories. He he talked to me, and uh, he talked to me privately, and shared with me the inside stories of not only the Yom Kippur War, but all the battles and the exodus of the Jews from Europe, because he was involved behind the scenes. He was a participant in these historic moments. And so he gave me uh, a first-hand account, an insider's account of what happened. And it, it was one of the most 
remarkable uh, things that I've ever experienced because I wasn't just reading about history. I was hearing about history from a man who was one of the key players, a man who was at a at, at the highest possible levels and, and knew things that nobody else could, knew, uh, could know. And he talked to me about this, and it, it had the, the net effect of, of really strengthening my faith because um, he told me, and this was a man who at one time was uh, a tough secular Jew, hardened through military battle and dealing with the Nazis, et cetera, et cetera. But he developed a relationship with the Lord later on in life. And so he told me, for example, how the God of Israel supernaturally intervened um, in the Yom Kippur War and other battles. He told me firsthand how they uh, chased down uh, famous Nazis uh, who escaped Nazi Germany at the end of World War II and had escaped to places like South America, etc. And uh, he talked to me about the, the hidden agenda and the open agenda of groups like Hamas and how they were dedicated to literally wiping Israel off the face of the map. So one thing we need to understand, and you're not hearing this from the secular media at all, one thing we need to understand is that Hamas, these other terrorist groups, uh, the PLO at that time, Yasser Arafat, uh, the uh, Iran, that they have said many times publicly, published and, and documented statements where they have boldly threatened the existence of the nation of Israel. And they have said, uh, they have said this, Yasser Arafat said, and he was the former head of the PLO, the Palestinian Liber uh, Liberation Organization. And Arafat said publicly that their goal was to wipe Israel off the face of the map, obliterate them, make them extinct, extinct which means kill them, massacre them. And, and also the leaders of these movements like Hamas have publicly said that uh, their goal is to invade Israel militarily and drive them into the sea for, with the intention of drowning them and, and making the, 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 the people of Israel extinct. So those are high-level threats, by the way. Anyone would agree that those are high-level threats. So this is not a, a confrontation between two different entities or nations over you know, peripheral issues. This is a confrontation where one uh, of the parties, the, the, those that want to uh, destroy Israel, where their goal is to wipe out Israel, to massacre every Israeli, to obliterate them, uh, and to wipe them off the face of, of the map. So they're not playing games. And when you saw, and, and this was bone-chilling for me, and I'm sure it was for you, when you saw the, the videos pouring out on the Internet, and you, they looked like little dots in the sky. The sky was cloudy, and you saw these little dots. And then uh, as the camera got closer to the little dots, you saw that the little dots represented armed soldiers who were like parachuting in, but they weren't using traditional parachutes. They were using those multicolored 
uh, high-end parachutes or, or almost like gliders. And you saw these uh, the armies of militant Hamas um, invading, literally invading the nation of Israel from the skies, not using traditional uh, aircraft or whatever, not using uh, many of the more traditional means of military invasion. But they were parachuting in with these multicolored gliders. And then as they landed, and in one particular location, which I'm sure many of you saw, there was a, a giant outdoor uh, rock and roll festival, rock and roll party, kind of like a, being held out in the desert, kind of like a smaller version of the Burning Man uh, rave slash rock festivals. Uh, that are held out in the desert. So out, held out in the desert of Israel, there was this rave rock festival with, you know, thousands of young people. And by young people, I mean, I guess that means somewhere in their latter teens to uh, younger age adults, you know, in their 30s or 20s or whatever. And they invaded that area. And these young people or young adults or adults or whatever they're out there partying, and, and our response is not to make a moral judgment about what they did while they were partying, because let's be honest, anything they did while they were partying out there in the desert did not warrant uh, their being kidnapped by armed Hamas soldiers, nor did it warrant their being massacred uh, on the spot uh, while they were running for their lives as they saw Hamas land all around them in the middle of their rave desert rock festival party. Because that stuff goes on in America, like, constantly. And, of course, the most famous one would be the Burning Man Festival held in uh, the desert of Black Rock. So, so you have all these partiers, um, and as the, the night begins to merge into the very earliest uh, minutes of uh, the dawn, while it's still dark, and then as it, the very beginning of the light begins to hit the desert, all of a sudden, all these uh, adults partying are caught totally by surprise, because all of a sudden, the unthinkable is happening. They're being invaded from the skies. I, I guess that was done to, to, to move in Hamas soldiers heavily armed heavily armed, um, but they were moving under, underneath the radar. And so I'm, it's, sim it's simply an estimation on my part that the strategic purpose of coming in with these parachutes was so that they would come in undetected. They, would be, uh, they wouldn't be seen by the uh, IDF, the uh, Israeli Defense Forces. And so they were successful for a while because they came in and they were slaughtering Jews and the partiers, and then they were kidnapping others, and, and nobody knows what has happened to the, the thousands of people missing. Many of them were massacred, and their bodies left in the desert, or their bodies were left in the streets. Uh, shops were blown up, cars were blown up, people were blown up, and this was an all-out assault. Now, they, they say that the intensity and level of this invasion against Israel um, was many times 
more intense than the invasion or the detonation or however you want to describe it of the World Trade Towers. Now, I have not seen, I've heard that repeatedly from multiple uh, news sources. I haven't, and I don't think anybody has yet seen the full scope of the invasion um, against Israel. But I've seen enough of it uh, on, on television and other video sources. I've seen enough of it to know that this was a terrifying invasion. And then I saw, like you probably saw, uh, the Prime Minister Netanyahu, his response to Hamas after they invaded Israel, and they deliberately did not engage the military. Hamas deliberately went after unarmed citizens. Hamas deliberately slaughtered, kidnapped, and massacred citizens, which is against, it's a, it's a total violation of the, uh, of the, the laws of war that have been established. And Netanyahu, who has been, I read a book that he wrote decades ago. You know, I talk about this a lot, how, how the Holy Spirit uh, will lead me supernaturally in my research and studies, etc. It happens all the time. It's uncanny. And I remember at this particular occasion, I was in a major university in, in, in a Western state in a major city in a western state, and they had a massive university uh, library. And I was walking through the library. This was decades ago. I was walking through the library and, uh, and pulling books that, that interested me from the shelves, and, and I speed read at a very fast rate. And I was reading, got a stack of books, and I was reading all of these books uh, that were dealing with topics that I was interested in. Now, this is decades ago, and it was long before the World Trade Center uh, bombings. So, so I was drawn, and I, in retrospect, I believe I was drawn by the super, by the by the supernatural power of God. I was drawn by the power of the Holy Spirit, and and I can remember it right now as I'm talking to you, because the Lord has given me a photographic memory. But this photographic memory, which is a gift from God, it, it appears that it's only activated in my mind when I see something, or I hear something, or I talk to somebody, or I see a book or whatever. And if the subject matter, or the topic, um, or the research, or the book, or the conversation, or the person, or whatever it is, if it is of interest to me, see, there's got to be a psychological hook. If it is of interest to me, then it, like, gets whatever it is, walking, talking, whatever it is, seeing, reading a book, so-called chance meetings with famous people, whatever it is, it is stored in my mind permanently via a photographic memory, but it, it only operates when I have an intense interest uh, at the moment regarding whatever it is I'm looking at or talking to. Um, my, uh, it's like a photographic memory kicks in, but, but, there, but it only kicks in when I'm encountering information that is 
of a very high degree interest to me at that particular moment in time. And, and that may mean that at that particular moment in time when this photographic memory kicks in, uh, I may not know why the photographic memory kicks in. Because many times, and, and I'm not always aware that the photographic memory has kicked in. In other words, it transpires without my being aware of it. And many times, I am not aware at that moment in time of anything special or unique going on. And I'm not even aware at that moment in time of uh, the, the importance or potential value that this information will be to me. In other words, I may, through photographic memory, retrieve and capture information, but I may not understand at all the value of that information at that particular moment in time. It's just, it's just another book. It's just another person. It, I'm not even aware of it having any particular high level of uh, uh, relevance. I, I hope I'm communicating accurately here. So anyway, I'm walking down, but this, this just kicked in. And I, re, I was talking this over with somebody last night and, and talking about this experience. But it wasn't till about two or three minutes ago, as I began to talk to you about it, that not only did my photographic memory retrieve the, the, the book that I picked up, the individual who wrote the book, but the photographic memory instantly triggered a kind of stored in, in your memory, a, a retrieval. It's like it played back a video in my mind and what I saw. And this, this wasn't triggered until about two or three minutes ago as I was talking to you. And my mind records everything just like yours does. And so I saw myself walking down the, the it's not a hallway, whatever it is, the, the, the passageway between one row of books and another. So, so on the left-hand side and the right-hand side are, you know, about six feet tall uh, shelves with books uh, on either side of me, to the left and the right. And I saw myself from the point of view of my eyes observing what is in this library in front of me and to the left and to the right side. And then as I'm walking down uh, this library, and this library happened to be at this particular time uh, located at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and it was a, it was a state-of-the-art library. So I'm walking down the corridor, and I could see it like it was yesterday. And I felt prompted to, nothing special, but just urged, prompted to continue walking. And I continued walking, and in front of me was another large row or wall of books. But this wall of books were not on the left, or they weren't on the right. This wall of books was kind of like dead center in front of me, about six feet tall, a wall of books. And I'm walking towards this wall of books. That, that stretches out uh, and, and covers the middle area, dominates the middle area of the corridors of books. So while I'm perusing these books, and there's a window that, you know, there's a relatively large window that is kind of structured in the middle of these books. And I, it's like I'm watching the movie now playing in my head. 
And as I'm looking at the books, you know, I'm looking at the titles, and then I see a book from the from the uh, not the front or the back, the side of the book. I see the book, a book, and I see in large letters uh, the words terrorism. And back then, that was not, I mean, it was an important, relevant word, but it was not a red-hot, radioactive word like it is today. And I, I, I noticed that as I'm looking at the, the side of this book, and I begin to pull the book off the shelf, and I see there's a, it's, terrorism is the major part of the title, and then something about Israel and something about the words terrorism and existential threat. And the author's name was uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, who, who had never become prime minister uh, and, and was basically unknown at the time I picked up the book. I mean, I never heard of this guy, Benjamin Netanyahu. And so I, I sat down for the next you know, three hours or so and, and uh, speed read the book. And, and the thesis of the book was Western societies like Israel, like those in Europe, like the United States, must be aware of the fact that on a global level, there's a rising threat of terrorism and terrorist attacks, and that we're totally unprepared uh, for those events, he warned. And, and this is coming from my memory. I, you know, this was like 30 years ago or more. No, it was more than that. It was it was more than thirty years ago, but I can remember the thesis of the book and, and the key topics. He was trying to alert people to the dangers of global terrorism, specifically militant Islamic terrorism. And then he he said that Western societies like the United States, Israel, etc., needed essentially to get up to speed, know what's happening, and and can't continue to to operate. Uh, in a defenseless position or be ignorant of the ever-present danger of terrorism, Netanyahu said, because it's coming, and it's, he basically said it's inevitable that it's coming, and when it comes, we're not ready for it. And so we need to get ready for it now and be proactive. And I'll never forget reading that. Now, when I read that, there was no Twin Towers thing. There was no—at that time— I don't recall any major big terrorist attack that had threatened the United States of America. It was like it was like not a central 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 issue. But for whatever reason I was drawn to it and I absorbed it and I never forgot the message of the book even though it didn't appear to be all that relevant at the time. And so I'm giving you an example of how the Lord can supernaturally lead you, as he does me. I mean, he doesn't do it all the time. It's not 24-7. But how the Lord supernaturally leads you through his Holy Spirit, and he supernaturally leads you and guides you in your research, even though you don't realize at that particular time that you are researching something that you should be researching. And what I mean by that is, I was not conscious or aware of how important the thesis of Benjamin Netanyahu's book on terrorism was when I looked at his book and felt led to read it. Because at that time, it was like, 
it was like a non-issue. And yet I was draw I was irresistibly drawn to read it, and I did read it. And its contents stayed with me. And and they seeded my inner man with important data and information and preparation. And this happens to me all the time. So the point is that 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 is, I believe, an outworking of one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And, and you know, I'm, I'm, some people might say, well, you're stretching it theologically. Well, all I can tell you is that this has happened so many times that um, it, it's a secondary, it, it's completely a secondary issue to debate whether it's an extension of a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom. Or it is simply the Lord moving through a believer's life by his grace and guiding him or her, and guiding him or her, in this case it was me, into a very important topic that had not yet become important, but would be of vital importance in the future. The Lord was leading me even before I knew he was leading me. And I want to add by saying, God is doing that in your life. If you pay attention, to this process, um, God is leading you in your life in, in a multiplicity of ways, even before you're aware that he's doing it. So here we are, decades later. I mean, it's at least 40 years later. And Netanyahu obviously has been a key figure, and terrorism is, is and the threat of terrorism uh, is a is one of the, the central problems uh, for America, for Europe, for Israel, and for many nations. And it's, it's with a certain irony that I, that I read that book, and now that I reflect upon it in light of the fact that 50 years to the day, uh, 50 years later, 50 years from the Yom Kippur War, when Egypt invaded Israel, we now have Hamas and Iran invading Israel, and the Prime Minister of Israel, who, when I read that book, Benjamin Netanyahu was an obscure and totally unknown individual, but now he's Prime Minister of Israel, and we know enough about him from his track record and what he has said, and what he said in response to the attack against Israel by Hamas is that, I'm paraphrasing, but Netanyahu said that Israel would strike back with all of its force. Now, when Benjamin Netanyahu says words of that caliber, he means it. It's not an idle threat. It's not like the words of some American politician who's simply posing for the cameras and, and there won't be any tangible follow-through. You can expect that there will be a, a strike back of incredible force and magnitude that will be staggering. And that strike back could happen at any moment. It could happen now while you're listening to me on the Paul McGuire report. It could happen, but it will happen in a relatively short period of time. Now, how long that period of time is, only, only the Lord knows. But it will happen because I've heard Benjamin Netanyahu say this repeatedly. And he has spoken up while, while others have been afraid to speak up. And he, te he, he warns Israel's enemies about the danger of their threatening 
or invading militarily uh, the nation of Israel. And he has repeatedly warned organizations like Hamas and nations like Iran that if they dare to threaten Israel's, quote, existential right to exist, that they will receive, uh, I want to be careful with my words, they will receive a, a response that will be incredibly fierce and incredibly powerful as both a punitive and a protective measure uh, against the attack that they just endured. So it's not over yet. And we need to pray for all the nations involved, because it's exactly these kinds of events which can easily turn into uh, World War III events. World War One and World War Two erupted over similar types of events that occurred uh, prior to World War One and prior to World War Two, and so this is we. The world right now is in one of the highest periods of volatility that it has ever been in. We have the Ukraine Russia conflict, which is teetering on the potential of World War Three and some kind of nuclear exchange. And that would involve, inevitably, uh, an escalation by Russia, participation perhaps by the United States and the European Union, participation by communist China, Iran, and many other na uh, nations. So, so this is not just some isolated event that we're watching happen far, far away in Israel. This is potentially a trigger event that could potentially lead to World War III. So it's very dangerous, and it's imperative that we pray as God tells us to pray. And how does God tell us to pray? He tells us to pray by saying we're to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And that's a specific command by God, and it's a specific instruction about how we are supposed to pray. We're supposed to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. There's a very bold implication in that commandment and instruction from God on how to pray. And that is when God says that we're to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, it is implied by God's order to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. He didn't say pray for the peace of Iran. He said pray for the peace of Jerusalem. The, the direct implication is that God has a covenant a supernatural covenant relationship with the children of Israel. A lot of Christians don't like that. But you know what? Their problem is 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 not with my usage of the words. Their problem is really with God because I am simply quoting what God has already said. And the Bible talks about the covenant that God in, in Deuteronomy, God talks about and in Ezekiel, God talks about the covenant that God has made with the physical descendants of uh, Israel. And the covenant is that in the last days, not based on their performance, not based on their righteousness, not based on any remote sense that they deserve it, because in fact they don't deserve it, but purely by a theological form of grace 
a covenant has been made between God and the children of Israel that they would be returned to the land, to the land, the physical land of Israel in the last days. And that happened uh, starting around 1947 when Israel was uh, being resettled and the Jews were pouring out of pouring out of Europe. Okay, we're going to dig into this more, and we need to pray, though. We need to pray for multiple reasons, because, again, everything in, on a global level is, is being pushed to the stretching point, which is exactly what Jesus Christ said when he talked about the signs of the times. So we're going to be back in, in a moment. This is Paul McGuire. You're listening to the Paul McGuire Report. Be sure to visit paulmcguire.us. That's paulmcguire.us. And by the way, you can get a copy of this book. I, I don't promote it a lot. It's called Are You Ready? And uh, you'll see that many of the, the chapters and the contents of Are You Ready? That's where General Shimon Aram endorsed the book. But many of the things that I talk about in Are You Ready? They've happened. So I wrote the book. In uh, 2005, and uh, many of the things that I predicted or quoted or where the Bible predicted have already come to pass. All right, you're listening to the Paul McGuire Report on Paul McGuire. Visit paulmcguire.us. We'll be back in just a moment. You are listening to the Paul McGuire Report. This is Paul McGuire. Excuse me, many years ago. I don't know, many years ago, I don't even know how many years ago, but I was speaking at a uh, major Bible prophecy conference down near San Diego. In fact, I think it was, it wasn't San Diego. And uh, one of the people who attended the conference and spoke at the conference was the current prime minister of Israel. And uh, at that time, I was hosting the nationally syndicated Paul McGuire show, and uh, the Prime Minister of Israel was familiar with the show because his his aides or his staff were aware of the program, and he knew uh, General uh, Shimon Aram, uh, who endorsed my book, and I had the privilege of being friends with him. In any case, um, as scheduled... I was escorted into a private, a private uh, conference room or a, a private meeting room at a major hotel down there in San Diego. And uh, I, it was arranged for me to have a private meeting with the Prime Minister of Israel. And, uh, and I was given an opportunity to one-on-one ask him basically any kinds of questions I wanted to ask him. So I remember sitting in this room uh, with uh, Mossad, the the Israeli intelligence secret service agents in the room and outside of the room. And they were providing a very high level of armed security for the Prime Minister of Israel, for obvious reasons. And uh, he was a politician, obviously, like any politician, and he knew how to be charming, and uh, he had uh, a high level of people skills. But but after, the, you know, we, we did the, the social, the initial people skills, social interaction, 
talk, and I am not belittling it. That's just the way things are. But I asked them some questions uh, based directly from the Bible and Bible prophecy. And what I asked him uh, was what he knew about uh, the Abrahamic covenant that that God made through Abraham to uh, the physical descendants of Israel, in which God promised uh, through the Abrahamic covenant to bring the physical descendants of Israel back into the land of Israel in the last days. And he responded to me, and I, <laughs> I was caught off guard, and, and I was quite surprised. I guess I shouldn't have been, but I was quite surprised that, that he was uh, extremely well-versed uh, in Bible prophecy, extremely well-versed in the, in the biblical account of Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, and God's promise to give the physical descendants of Abraham the land of Israel in the last days. So I, I, he, he answered, uh, and as he was answering me, it was obvious that he had a very high level of understanding of Bible prophecy, of, of, of major uh, prophetic events in, in the uh, Old Testament, like the Abrahamic covenant. And then the Prime Minister of Israel um, had a high level of uh, knowledge about many passages regarding Bible prophecy, regarding the words of Jesus Christ, the signs of the times, the the olive tree, uh, the book of Revelation, uh, the uh, war of Armageddon. Occurring in the last days, so we had a, a well, we had an in-depth conversation surrounding Bible prophecy, Armageddon, uh, the the return of Jesus Christ, and uh, I can only assume that he was, you know, educated in this manner growing up, and I can assume that because. Uh, Israel has been supported by the evangelical Christian community in the United States of America. I can only assume that that he had been briefed many times over key passages of Scripture as they relate to Bible prophecy, as they relate to prophecy and the nation of Israel, as they relate to the Second Coming and other prophetic passages, and to the role of Israel in Bible prophecy in the last days. That that. As part of his training, uh, he was exposed to and educated at a high level on Bible prophecy. In fact, he knew more. He knew far more about Bible prophecy and key verses and key themes in Bible prophecy. He knew far more about that than the overwhelming majority of evangelical and so-called Bible-believing pastors, and sadly to say, evangelical leaders. That I have met and talked to. Uh, I'm not saying that these men don't know the Bible. They do know the Bible. But when it comes to the subject matter of, of Bible prophecy, you would, well, maybe you wouldn't be shocked, but I have been shocked over the years to, to discover the appalling lack of even rudimentary and basic understanding of the basic texts of Bible prophecy 
in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the basic and fundamental themes regarding Bible prophecy. I mean, it's stunning to me. It's one thing if you agree or disagree or hold this position or that position uh, regarding the prophetic timetable. It's one thing if, you know, you're pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib or one of the other variations on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one thing. But to know nothing about the major positions regarding the return of Christ uh, and Bible prophecy, and to know nothing about, I mean, you may not accept, for example, some of the things that I said theologically, but if you are a well-versed person in terms of reading the Bible, you would know uh, the, 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 the pro and the cons uh, within the evangelical Christian community regarding um, a person or a church or a denomination's position, for example, on the Abrahamic covenant and, and other major prophetic themes of the Bible. And he was obviously educated theologically when it came to Bible prophecy, but his level of education far surpassed um, the level of understanding and education of the average evangelical or Bible-believing Christian pastor or leader. There, there are those, there, I mean, there's a large contingent of Christian leaders and pastors who know a tremendous amount about Bible prophecy. Don't, don't mistake my words. But there's an even larger percentage of Christian leaders and pastors who know next to nothing about Bible prophecy. It's embarrassing. I remember preaching uh, at a very famous church, uh, uh, you know, a number of years ago. And um, that church didn't have a lot of people speak at the pulpit uh, for their, you know, major evening service. Uh, rarely was Bible prophecy preached on in, in depth or relatively in depth. And uh, I was invited to give the evening message at this very well-known and very respected church. And it is, or it was at that time, a very respected church and very well-known. And it was a church where the Bible was preached and emphasized. However, when it came to specific themes of Bible prophecy, like heaven and hell uh, and other major themes, all important themes for crying out loud, of Bible prophecy, I I was unaware of the fact that I was preaching the evening service. Uh, it was either the Sunday evening service or the Wednesday evening service. I think it was the Sunday evening service. And I preached a number of times at the, that church, and I preached uh, later on a number of times at that church. And so I was caught up in ministering and teaching the Word of God, and I was, ju- I was simply covering and reviewing as I was giving my message, which is, was, it was evangelistic in nature. Uh, the main purpose of my message was to get people to repent and to either renew their relationship with Jesus Christ or to get people to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and become born again. So the central, uh, the central theme of my message was evangelistic. But in the process, the, the secondary theme, which I uh, uh, kept coming back to throughout the message, was a theme on the signs of the times that Jesus Christ spoke of and 
Bible prophecy. So in that process, I covered an entire series of key uh, Bible prophecy passages, such as the all-important, and you know it's, it's the all-important passage on you must be born again, and things like, and of course that was preached at the church, don't get me wrong, but you must be born again is connected, it's directly connected to key passages on Bible prophecy. The signs of the times are connected to key passages on Bible prophecy. So this message that I gave was televised live nationally, and it was recorded and replayed nationally on television uh, numerous times, and so it had a really massive audience. And it wasn't until that time when I when I happened to catch my message being re-aired, and I noticed that as I was giving the message, and thankfully the Spirit of God was moving, and thankfully people came to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and thankfully people were being ministered to, all of which I, I thank God for. But I happened to notice something that I that I didn't see as I was ministering there live because I was on the platform uh, and, and, and speaking from, you know, one of those glass or plastic see-through pulpits. And so I was looking and ministering directly to the audience, and I, I knew they were there, but seated behind me were uh, a number of the pastors of this particular church who, who were, you know, officiating and ministering. Uh, during the evening service in, in different ways. And, and I would say all of these men are genuine men of God. They're born again. They, they hold the Word of God in high esteem. But as I watched them listen to my message on Bible prophecy, I noticed something that was uh, uh, somewhat peculiar, and that was that, that they looked nervous. And, and one or two of them, and there was only like three sitting behind me, at least two of them, maybe three of them. They were they were they were sitting, you know, like cross-legged, one leg over the other one, and they were wiggling their feet. You know how people do when when they have either restless. <laughs> not trying to make a joke out of it, but when people have uh, the condition restless leg syndrome, which causes them neurologically they, they they have to move their legs and feet constantly, or when people are just plain old nervous. They weren't bored because you could you you couldn't have heard a pin drop when I was ministering. The people were were gripped with the message, thank God. But they were wiggling. One particular pastor, in general, was wiggling his foot like crazy, and so was another one. And it was very distracting. Well, I was unaware of it, and the people were were locked into my message, and and thankfully they didn't seem to be distracted by it. But I'm looking at this, and I'm going, why do they, why do these pastors? They, why are they looking so nervous? Why are they wiggling their feet in a nervous way? What I mean, I'm not saying anything even remotely heretical. I'm not saying anything in some outrageous manner. My 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 message is it was very balanced theologically. I didn't go off on any weird extreme, so I couldn't figure out why they they were wiggling their feet like they were nervous or or like they were uncomfortable with my message. And I think they were uncomfortable with my message. And so I reviewed it once or twice uh, when I saw it on TV, 
trying to analyze their their behavior, which I thought was weird. It was weird in in reference to the fact that I was well known at this this church, and I was well known and very highly endorsed by by the pastor, who was a uh, major Christian leader. So it wasn't a question of I was trying to earn acceptance. I already had acceptance from the most important people at this church. But they, they seemed uncomfortable with my message. And then so I'm watching the re-airing of this, analyzing why, why, why are these guys so nervous? I couldn't understand it. And then it just hit. It was so obvious. It was so obvious why, why they were nervous that I, um, it was so obvious that, you know how when things can be so obvious that you, you miss it because it's too obvious? Well, it was one of those deals. It was so obvious. It was too obvious. So I actually missed the obvious because it was right in front of my face. And why they were uncomfortable uh, was because I talked about, in a, in a very sane, rational, yet biblical way, I talked about the reality and the existence of hell. I talked about the danger of hell. If you don't repent, have your sins forgiven by the blood of Jesus, and ask Jesus Christ into your heart, and invite Jesus Christ to make you born again. I, I preached from the pulpit that if you did that, you would be sent to the lake of fire, and you would spend all eternity separated from God in hell. And then I explained that if you come to Christ, and if you haven't come to Christ, I gave them an opportunity to come to Christ right then and there. I mean, how can you argue with that? That's a standard evangelistic message of salvation. So I... Um, I, I talked about these things, heaven, hell, the lake of fire, and the need to be forgiven by faith of your sins through the blood of Jesus Christ, the need to invite Jesus Christ into your heart and so that you can be born again, and that a condition of being saved, a condition of having your name written in the book of life, and the single most all-important condition for entering heaven and receiving eternal life is that you personally invite Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins through the blood of Jesus Christ, and that you invite Jesus Christ to come into your heart and make you born again. So you invite Christ into your heart, and you ask Jesus Christ to make you born again. And if you do that by faith sincerely, you will be guaranteed entrance into heaven, you will be guaranteed eternal life, and you will be welcomed into the new heaven, the new Jerusalem, um, and the new earth. Now, that's, a, that's, that's all biblical. It's all in the book of Revelation. It's, it's not a matter of my individual interpretation. It's solid Bible teaching. Yet they were nervous about it. And, and what I concluded was this, that they had decided, I don't know whether, whether it was them individually, but somebody had decided, or it had become the new custom of this church, to kind of, they would never have considered themselves at this time seeker-friendly. But at the time I gave the message, they certainly didn't consider themselves seeker-friendly. Um, they wanted to be friendly. They wanted to be Bible-believing. But somehow, they, 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 some of these pastors seemed uncomfortable with the, my direct approach in teaching on important prophetic themes like heaven and hell, salvation, eternal life the signs of the times, etc. 
And I think what made them especially nervous was the fact that I talked about hell in a matter-of-fact way. That made them nervous, and they were wiggling their feet like crazy when I talked about hell. But, but I, in addition to talking about hell, I, I emphasized the opportunity of eternal salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And I emphasize the fact that God is love, and I emphasize the fact that you can uh, have eternal life and live forever in heaven with God if you will simply repent of your sins and invite Jesus Christ into your life, and he will make you born again if you ask him to. And then you can, uh, and then the minute you die, you will be in the presence of the Lord in heaven, in a brand new glorified body. And if you invite Jesus Christ into your life, you will live forever, live for all eternity in heaven, in paradise with God. So, so the tone of the message, you know, didn't center in any kind of condemnation or, or you know, a, a overwhelmingly depressing doom and gloom. The, the, the central theme of the message is that God is love and that God loved you, the, the sinner, so much that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, into the earth. To, to save your soul so that you could have eternal life. And all you have to do is accept that free gift of salvation by faith and invite Christ into your life, and you can be born again and guaranteed by God that you will have eternal life and live forever with him in heaven. Now, that's a joyous, biblically positive message. But they were, they were really nervous that I mentioned hell and then spoke of the reality of hell. But really, you're being dishonest in your preaching if you're only talking about heaven and forgiveness and uh, eternal life by faith. You're being dishonest in your preaching if you don't, in counterposition, teach somewhat or preach somewhat about the reality of hell being your eternal destination if you refuse to come to Christ and ask for forgiveness of your sins through the blood of Jesus. And if you refuse to invite Christ into your life and invite him to make you born again, because the Bible says if you do that, you will not receive eternal life and you will spend all of eternity in hell, beginning with the lake of fire. It's just that preaching salvation doesn't ultimately make any sense biblically or rationally if you don't preach and teach the entire package, the good and the bad. And, and, and so that's why they were nervous. They were nervous because I think they made the decision that they thought with their finite human minds that they would be offensive or potentially offend the people by directly talking about hell and by directly talking about the fact that if you choose to reject Christ's free offer of salvation, if you choose to, to invite Christ into your life and to become born again, that if you make those fatal decisions, you will not spend eternity in heaven, you will spend eternity in hell. And that is a bit, in, in a church that has made the decision in their finite minds, which are grotesquely imperfect, yet they've made a theological decision that is absolutely disastrous, and that is they made the decision to to soften, to obscure, to hide the, the, the full truth of the gospel message. by, And, and that means they, they deliberately and intentionally chose to omit 
the teaching of the reality of hell, uh, the reality of spending all eternity in hell, versus the reality of heaven by accepting Jesus Christ into your life by faith and having your sins forgiven by faith. The emphasis is you get a brand new glorified body and you live forever and ever and ever in heaven, in the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth, which is a message of rejoicing. And you are going first to the marriage supper of the Lamb, the the greatest, most joyous cosmic party that will ever be held in the history or prehistory of creation and the universe. You read the biblical account of the marriage supper of the Lamb, and you see that God is love, God is a good God, and you have a personal invitation. In fact, you have a guaranteed invitation with your name on it that when you die, or when you're called home to be with the Lord, you are guaranteed that you have a, your own seat reserved for you with your name on it at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the greatest cosmic party held by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And you, you are guaranteed uh, a seat, and you are guaranteed to be a participant of at the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is beyond description, and its glory, and its majesty, and its fun, and its creativity, and its incredible rejoicing. It's mind-blowing. Now, I don't know how much more positive I can get. I mean, I think I drove the message home to you. You, you got the short version of essentially what I was trying to say. But they got nervous because, you know, you're supposed to be a faithful Bible teacher. You're supposed to be faithful to the Word of God. So if you're preaching salvation, but you're, you're, you're censoring uh, the reality of hell, the reality of eternal life in hell, the consequences of rejecting uh, Christ's free offer of salvation, the requirements for receiving the gift of eternal life. If you, if you abort part of the message of Christ, you are doing the people you're preaching to a horrendous disservice. So that's why they were nervous. But I, it took me a while to figure that out. They were nervous because, again, you see, when you're, you're seduced by your finite mind, which is limited, or you're seduced by your flesh, or you're seduced by the spirit of this age, instead of relying on the Word of God and the Spirit of God to instruct you and guide your ways, you're relying on your human fallen mind, you're relying on the, the customs of the culture at, at any given moment, which is always changing, and therefore, because you're not relying on God on his word, you end up relying on an imperfect source, which is your fallen human imagination, fallen human ideas and religious traditions. And they always end up in an imperfect and inadequate presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're listening to the Paul McGuire Report. Visit paulmcguire.us. Behind everything we cover, whether it's current events analysis, scientific analysis, or whatever, behind it all, the driving force of the Paul McGuire Report and this ministry, Paul McGuire Ministries in Paradise Mountain Church International, the driving force is always effectively preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, winning souls, making disciples of all nations, and teaching and communicating effectively a biblical worldview. That is our driving force. That is the momentum by which we operate. And I invite you personally 
to to partner with me and partner with this ministry. And I invite you to join with me in receiving this energizing force that that propels us and motivates us, which which I describe in my book, Power from on High. I invite you to receive by faith power from on high. I invite you to personally open your heart to the mobilizing, energizing force of the Spirit of God, which is the very power that that motivates us to keep going, to keep winning people to Christ, and to keep proclaiming the truth. And I invite you to partner with us. And because when you choose to partner with us, when you choose to partner with us, you end up receiving the very same thing which motivates us and drives us, which is a measure of the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit. When you choose to partner with this ministry, you too are sharing in that motivating, energizing force that the Bible calls the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit. And you will discover that in the time period that we live in, which is in the context of the last days, you will discover personally in your own life, you will discover that you will receive and experience a supernatural enhancement, the energizing and guiding force of the Holy Spirit, the motivating power of the Spirit of God. And so when you partner with us, you become a recipient in all that we're about. So when you partner with us, you're making a choice to join with us or become one in the Spirit with us in accomplishing the spiritual goal that God has called us to. So when you choose to partner with us, you receive, as part of that partnership, that which we have received fully by the grace of God. And and that means you receive the energizing power of the Holy Spirit. You receive power on high. You receive the Spirit of God to guide you, to protect you, to lead you. You know, I made reference to certain gifts of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God wants to, in the lives of every believer who's truly born again, the Spirit of God seeks to move through you and supernaturally enhance your life and give you supernatural gifts of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit. And it's through having the supernatural gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit that you discover that you now have the supernatural power of God to be an overcomer in the spiritual battle, in the spiritual war that we're in. Now, what that means to you tangibly and basically and foundationally, what it means to you is that you're not walking out on the spiritual battlefield naked. You're not in a spiritual battle or fight all by yourself, that you are not forced to rely on your mere human finite strength or finite wisdom to do what you need to do to make things happen in life, to to win the battles of life. And we all, every single one of us, 100%, we all face the battles of life. It's It's part of living in this fallen world. But you see, the game changer that God has for you, if you'll receive it, if you'll accept it, the game changer, and this will put a sparkle in your eyes, literally. It'll put a bounce in your step, literally. When you receive the Spirit of God, 
And along with the Spirit of God comes the supernatural energizing force of the Spirit of God, the supernatural motivating force of the Spirit of God, the supernatural wisdom and guidance and protection of the Spirit of God, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. They all become energized, activated. And so you are turned on, in a good sense, by the power of the Spirit of God. And when you do that along with choosing to to study the Word of God and choosing to acquire knowledge which grants you power, when you choose to do all of those things in a synergistic manner, then it's like you're turning on the ignition of, uh, I'm trying to think of what would come to my mind, you're turning on the ignition of, you know, what those, those uh, V8 hopped up cars in the, in the 70s and the 80s and 90s, and, they, and they've made a comeback today. Growing up in New York City, we used to refer to these American-made V8 high-powered souped-up cars. Um, we referred to them as bombs, B-O-M-B-S. Because when you turned on the ignition, there was like an explosion when the engine was turned on. And, and when you turned on the ignition, there was like the, the, the motor roared. And that was, you know, that was the cool thing back then. But it's, it's, it's a weak analogy, but it's the equivalent of, you know, all of a sudden, instead of, you know, driving a bicycle, and you may prefer that for ecological reasons, but all of a sudden... You know, you're able to go from zero to 100 miles an hour in a phenomenal short period of time. And it's because what you have under the hood is not some recycled half solar, half gasoline modified V4 engine. What you have is a full blown, at this time, made in America V8 super powered, souped up car that on the streets of New York we used to refer to as bombs because of their explosive power. And isn't it, <laughs> isn't it interesting that the definition of uh, the power of the Holy Spirit comes from the word, the term power from on high, which comes from the word dunamis, which means the explosive, as in bomb, the explosive dynamite power of God, or the dunamis. So I'm here talking about activating the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, and admittedly I'm, weak, I'm using perhaps a, a weak metaphor because it's, I run the risk of turning some people off because I'm, I'm speaking favorably uh, of a high-powered American-made engine when the American engines were high-powered. So I run a certain risk for using that as my metaphor, but in any case, you turn the ignition on one of these souped-up, high-powered cars from that time period, and they roar with an explosive force when you turn on the V8 engine, which is amplified or souped up. And so they explode. It's like an explosion. And so I liken that to the dunamis dynamite power of God explosion of the Spirit of God. And maybe the metaphor is not something that you can immediately relate to, but I guarantee you that in Every spiritual battle, every spiritual conflict, every spiritual challenge in your life, if you're relying on your own finite human strength, you are not going to make it. The Church of Jesus Christ in America is facing catastrophic problems of of 
unbelievable magnitude. I am telling you right now, if you don't start learning how to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of his, of his Word, you are not going to make it. I am not going to make it. Why? Because we do not have in and of ourselves the sufficient power or wisdom or strength or staying power or guidance or knowledge. We do not have in and of ourselves the enormous sustaining power that we absolutely must have in order to be victorious in the days to come and to be victorious in these last days, which is what God wants. The only way we can be victorious is if we obey God and wait on God through prayer and receive the power of His Spirit, and then we move in the power of the Holy Spirit, the guidance of the Spirit, and we, and we move according to the Word of God, and we acquire knowledge, which grants us power. It is that synergy, it is that combination of spiritual dynamics which causes the ignition to be turned on in a, in a powerful V8 car that liter- literally roars when you turn on the ignition. And when the gasoline hits the engine, there's an explosive sound of power. And, and, and then you can stomp on the accelerator, if, assuming you're in a remote location. You, you, you have the option, if you're in a remote location, of stomping on the accelerator, burning rubber, and, and flying down the highway at whatever incredible speed. All of this, which you could never do with an itsy-bitsy little low-powered engine. So you need power. You need power from on high. David, David needed power. Power from on high. Oh yeah, there's a different theological name for it in the Old Testament. I get that. But but don't miss the central point. The reason David had the boldness to walk directly up to the giant Goliath and look him in the eyes and what supernaturally enabled David to to thunder out loudly these words that just exploded out of his inner man while he was looking at Goliath. David said to Goliath, how dare you defy the armies of the living God? And and, and the battlefield shook when David said those words. The Syrian army that was standing behind Goliath, they were hit by the impact of those words. And the, the, the the armies of Israel standing behind or hiding behind David, they were hit with a supernatural, empowering strength, a paradigm shift when David thundered the words to Goliath, how dare you defy the armies of the living God? And then he hit Goliath in the center of his forehead with uh, a smooth stone from his slingshot. Goliath the giant dropped. His body weight of muscle was so heavy that when Goliath dropped, there was a thud that reverberated throughout the earth near near where David and Goliath were standing. And then David walks over to Goliath, and this had to be done. So this is not an act of cruelty or whatever or some bizarre ritual. But David used a sword and chopped off the head of Goliath, grabbed the head of Goliath by the hair, and then held up. Goliath's beheaded head and held it up high 
so that the face of Goliath, dead now, the face of Goliath was like beaming into the eyes of the thousands and thousands of uh, Philistine warriors that were gathered for battle and, and ready. But now they were terrified. In a moment, there was a paradigm shift in the battlefield. And in a moment, the, the enemy armies were struck with an instantaneous terror of such magnitude that they dropped their weapons and they ran for their lives. They ran for their lives on the battlefields. It is interesting to note and observe when you read the Bible how the it's so obvious that the Bible is supernaturally written because the Bible contains so many levels of truth and the Bible is multidimensional. So, for example, um, with the story of, um, not the story, the, the historical account of David versus Goliath, uh, a very interesting, a very interesting thing occurs in the Bible. <clears throat> nothing is is placed there by accident because God is the infinite, personal living God of the universe. So when we examine that biblical account of the the battle between David and Goliath, <clears throat> we observe the fact that David rejects the armor of King Saul which was probably, well, no, it was. It was the best armor money could buy, the best shield, the best sword. And it, it, gave, it would have given any uh, warrior or soldier a significant superior advantage to have been able to wear uh, the armor of Saul in any kind of military conflict. But David deliberately rejected the armor of Saul because that was David's way of saying, that he was going to be victorious against Goliath, not based on his own human strength, not based on his flesh, and not based on uh, the power of the flesh or the power of, of you know, uh, a title that was being exhibited by uh, King Saul. So the difference between King Saul is King Saul relied heavily upon his money, his power, his his armor, etc., the traditional fleshly human things that human beings rely on to win a battle or a war. David was making a clear distinction and making a statement uh, for the benefit of all the, the armies of Israel and their opponents. And what David was stating when he rejected the armor of Saul and just came to Goliath wearing the humble outfit of uh, a shepherd uh, with his slingshot, and he did not have the armor of Saul. He just had a slingshot. He didn't even have a sword for a weapon. He had a slingshot. And so he went to um, Goliath, relying totally on the power of God by faith. And then he defeated, he defeated Goliath because he trusted God, which made room for the power of God to move through him decisively. And, and in front of the Massive Philistine armies and the uh, is Israel's armies, he defeated their champion, the giant Goliath. And the armies of the Philistines fleed for their lives. Now, as we examine that account and, and zoom in on, on key aspects of the account, we notice that when David 
you know, swirls his slingshot and releases a smooth stone, which travels directly into the forehead of Goliath the giant, who then collapses dead. When we examine that and we look at it from a deeper level and allow the Spirit of God to speak to us, we have to ask the question, what is that all about? Well, there's multiple reasons what that is all about. But let's just isolate one factor of great importance. The stone that killed uh, Goliath landed and killed Goliath because that stone hit him or lodged itself directly in the forehead of Goliath the giant. So we want to emphasize the reality of the stone smashing into the forehead of the giant Goliath, which kills Goliath. So God is speaking to us on on multiple deeper levels when we read that account. And so one of the things I believe God is speaking to you and me about today, and speaking to his true bride, the church today, what is what battle are we fighting? Obviously, Israel uh, is involved in a battle with Hamas and Iran and the enemies of Israel. And I'm not minimizing that at all. That's that's vitally important. But also, uh, the Word of God is speaking to other nations and Christians in other nations, like the, the United States. And so, as Christians, in the great spiritual battle we're in, we're not necessarily direct, as Christians, we're not directly fighting usually, normally, you know, uh, the Iranian army or Hamas or, or physical armies based in the Middle East. We are fighting a spiritual war with, with, with demons and fallen angels, etc. And in the hierarchy of this invisible realm spiritual war, Everything that we are in conflict with today, as American Christians, or wherever you are a Christian, wherever you are living anywhere on planet Earth, I'm speaking to you also. But here in America, when we flip over the back of a U.S. dollar bill, we see the pyramid, the occult symbol, and we see the all-seeing eye of Lucifer located up towards near the top of the pyramid. And on the base of that pyramid, it's translated from Latin, it says New World Order. So what is located there? What is located there? What is located there towards the top of the pyramid on the back of the dollar is a picture of the all-seeing eye of Lucifer. So you see the all-seeing eye of Lucifer towards the top of the pyramid. The pyramid represents the New World Order. That's why on the back of the U.S. dollar, it says Nuvos Order Seclorum, New Order of the Ages or New World Order. It says that on the base of the pyramid, so there's no mistaking um, what it's about. The all-seeing eye of Lucifer is the symbol of the Illuminati. It's probably the most preeminent symbol of the Illuminati and the Illuminati's invisible government. Uh, where, where rulership is being attempted via a satanic new world order. And a symbol for that is is the all-seeing eye. And, and just about every teenager knows that, and now more and more adults know that. The all-seeing eye of Lucifer. Now, think about that for a moment. The all-seeing eye of Lucifer, when it is 
depicted on a man or a woman or a human being or a leader uh when 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 you when you see something exposing the illuminati etc often you'll see this all seeing eye of lucifer uh a picture of it placed directly on the forehead of of the human being male or female or leader or entertainer or whatever you'll see the all seeing eye of lucifer um placed on directly on the forehead area of a human being who's following Satan. Now think about that even further for a moment. So the the occultic symbol of the Illuminati and other occult secret societies, one of the primary symbols is the all-seeing eye of Lucifer. And so when artistically a human being who's allegedly part of the Illuminati or whatever is portrayed, often you will see the all-seeing eye of Lucifer placed directly on their forehead. It is directly on the forehead where David killed Goliath when he hit him with a smooth stone. Because Goliath was genetically the offspring of Nephilim Rephium. And Goliath, the power, the physical power of Goliath was birthed from supernatural, satanic, and occult activity. God's speaking to us through, through all of this. And so all the, the, the battles we're facing as Bible-believing Christians today, especially if it involves the Illuminati or uh, some other global secret society, you will often see, if somebody is, is illustrating this, you'll often see the picture of the all-seeing eye of Lucifer placed directly on the forehead. Of the heads, the contemporary heads of the Illuminati. Now, where does that come from? Why, why have the all-seeing eye of Lucifer directly on the individual's forehead? And then you dig deeper in context. And so, when you dig deeper, you discover that that area of the forehead is considered either a spiritual center of a human being. Or it's considered um, a, a supernatural center of a human being. So there are numerous religions, especially Eastern mystical religions like Hinduism and Buddhism, where you see the the you know they they put a dot with some kind of paint or makeup or etc. And they put a dot or a mark on the forehead of a disciple of, let's say, Buddha or Hinduism or a particular Eastern mystical sect, they'll put a mark on the forehead. Once again, it's it's a mark on the forehead. Now, dig deeper, a mark on the forehead, a mark. And so ancient occultic traditions emphasize and teach about that, that area on the forehead as being an occultic eye that allows you to see into the spiritual world. But also, um, when if you look at the human brain and study the human brain, uh, beneath your skull, if you were to use some kind of new medical technology and photograph the brain beneath the human skull in the area of 
the forehead where you usually see the Illuminati symbol placed. If you if you photograph the interior of the brain in that center of the forehead area, going towards the back of the brain, not that far away from the skull, is a often disputed, controversial uh, biological part of men and women called the pineal gland. And in occultic traditions, the pineal gland is the biological brain matter that corresponds to, you know, the, the area of the forehead. It, it's, it's, the pineal gland is a, is, is a biological part of the human brain. It is supposed to be the biological part of the human brain, which opens up the occultic third eye, opens up psychic occult forces, opens a person up to seeing into the occult realm, but but very possibly the demonic realm. And it is supposedly the pineal gland, which is the biological part of the human brain, that if it's functioning properly, um, or it's awakened through meditation and and other practices, uh, it is the pineal gland, which is the biological component that supposedly gives people access to to looking into the, the spiritual, supernatural world, allegedly. Okay, so so that so the people in the Illuminati have known this for for you know thousands of years. Occult traditions have talked about this for thousands of years, and supposedly, according to medical slash uh, occultic doctors and pr- practitioners, that an individual, especially individuals in Western society, that their ability to see in the spiritual world, their ab- ability to see into the supernatural world via the the pineal gland um, that ability to see into the spiritual realm is turned off when that pineal gland has been damaged by things like calcification which would be calcium uh, interacting or, or or getting into the pineal gland which is described as calcification of the pineal gland. So there's a belief in psychic and occult circles that if the pineal gland has been damaged via calcification or by taking certain drugs like fluoride and lithium, etc., which allegedly turn off pineal gland, you, you are allegedly turning off your all-seeing eye, your ability to see into the spiritual world. Okay, so just think of that for a moment, and then think of the fact that David chose to kill Goliath by his slingshot, where a smooth stone slammed into his skull in the forehead area, which is the exact area where, where in your brain the pineal gland exists. So I don't believe that's an accidental communication or event that the Lord is describing to us. I believe that the omniscient Lord, who's all-powerful, knew before the beginning of time that, that the secret societies that Satan is using to control the earth right now, like the Illuminati, whose symbol is the all-seeing eye of Lucifer, and the whole all-seeing eye of Lucifer as an archetype of the symbolism of this temporary Luciferian world order, or new world order, 
is all symbolized by the all-seeing eye of Lucifer. So it is not an accident that David, God's anointed, hits the forehead of Goliath, which kills him and causes him to be powerless. That is, I believe, a deliberate representation or communication by God to his people in the last days of the absolute necessity of waging spiritual warfare so strategically, so decisively, that you fully understand that when you're fighting principalities and powers and the dark, unseen forces of wickedness in heavenly places, when you fully understand and comprehend that, and then you choose to use the weapons of your warfare that are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, when you fully grow in the Lord by acquiring biblical knowledge, you're able to incorporate the truths that God has been trying to communicate for centuries into his body of Christ on the earth, so that it should be common understanding among all true Bible-believing Christians. It should be common understanding that a key factor in our spiritual battle is that we are not just battling individual demons and principalities and powers and fallen angels and Satan, but we're actually battling the present Luciferian world system or the present Luciferian world order symbolized by the all-seeing eye of Lucifer as a primary occultic symbol, which happens to also be the primary occultic symbol of the Illuminati. So when we're in intercessory prayers, this is where Christians in America need to wake up. They need a great awakening in the biblical sense. They need a great awakening so that they can see everything that God is trying to make them see so that they can be victorious in the battle. And part of that great awakening means there is a great awakening among God's people who are truly born again. There's a great awakening where the trance state ends, the the, the Babylonian spell dissipates, the, the Illuminati mind control disintegrates. The, the matrix or the illusory system dissolves by the power of God via effective spiritual warfare. And then you understand the totality of what you're really fighting in the invisible realm, which can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit or the dunamis. You are directly confronting the invisible satanic powers that are connected to the pineal gland or that area of the brain, or that area right on the human forehead. God wants wants his people to have a revelation, and the way that revelation would play out is that the lie that God's people have accepted and the false belief system that God's people have accepted, which goes something like this, oh, I don't believe in the all-seeing eye of Lucifer on the back of the U.S. dollar. I don't believe in the Illuminati. I don't believe in that all-seeing eye stuff. Well, that's great that you're saying that, but unfortunately, your choice not to believe it ends up resulting in you not believing the full teaching of the Word of God and what the, and what God is actually trying to teach us in the last days. Right now, the, one of the greatest threats to, to the Church of Jesus Christ on planet Earth besides Satan and the demons and the fallen angels, is an organized movement of evil that is headed up by secret society-type organizations like the Illuminati, which embrace the all-seeing eye of Lucifer. And then they have their other organizational societies, like the Great Reset, the World Economic Forum, 
And right now, the World Economic Forum has already planned, organized, strategized, and financed, and I'm not embellishing or exaggerating right here, the World Economic Forum has already financed and planned a total takeover of planet Earth that involves a multi-tiered attack, including mass euthanasia or mass death to reduce the population, the spreading of the occult, the practicing of the occult. So you have the World Economic Forum, whose occultic roots go back to Nazi occultism, and then you have the all-seeing eye of Lucifer, the Illuminati New World Order. You have the fact that we're living in the last days, and one of the hallmarks of the last days is that all of Israel will come back to Jerusalem in the last days, and Israel will be the center. It is prophesied in numerous places in the Old Testament and the New Testament that Israel will be the center of a global conflict prophesied about in the Bible. So you see, in order to understand all that, you have to begin by peeling back layer by layer the deep truths of the Word of God and really examine things like what is that stone all about that landed in the forehead of Goliath and killed him. And then flash forward, and you might examine the book of Revelation, where an account is given of the false prophet and the Antichrist, who's head of Mystery Babylon, or the New World Order. And the false prophet and the Antichrist together mass-distribute, spiritually and technologically, what is called the Mark of the Beast, 666, some kind of nanochip, microchip, uh, DNA chip implant where you can't buy or sell without having that nanochip or DNA chip or whatever, which um, causes the launching of a global cashless society predicted in the Bible, a global cashless society. So the World Economic Forum, the New World Order, which is their goal, even though they hide it by calling it the Great Reset, and these other occult-based movements are now, right now, they're literally in the methodical strategic process of taking over the world, which involves, as a preliminary measure, the total enslavement and persecution of true Bible-believing Christians, which is happening right now. And so this works out in, in very ordinary, everyday, practical ways. So, for example, the Three financial entities, supra entities, which control basically the entire global financial system, the entire global economic system, are mega financial entities like BlackRock, State Street, um, and then there's another one, Vanguard. These three supra financial entities own essentially 90% plus of all the wealth and the products and riches on planet Earth. That is how they control planet Earth, and they are a satanic world system. Because they are, with the United Nations, which is totally formed to, to implement a global government, which Lucifer will rule, a central goal of the United Nations is the creation of a new world order and a one world government. So all of this is happening now, and it's imperative that we know about all this and that we can process all this information. Because in doing so, we become more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. This is Paul McGuire. Be sure to visit paulmcguire.us. Please stand with us.
pray, ask the Lord what you can contribute or donate to this ministry. Whatever God places in your heart to do, simply obey the Lord and do what he tells you to do, and he will bless you for that obedience. Make sure that you pray for us and everybody associated with this ministry. Pray intercessory prayer warfare. Pray for us and physically demonstrate your support of us by helping us end the the computerized rigging attacks against the message, the message of truth, the message of the gospel that we are communicating around the world. Thank you for listening. This is the Paul McGuire Report. Be sure to visit paulmcguire.us.